This is the Secret Life of Mold podcast. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. Today I have a very special guest, Dave Gallup. Dave is a general manager of Eurofins MLab P&K. Welcome, Dave. Thanks, Craig. Very nice to join you. Thanks for the opportunity. You bet. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Dave, I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about your background, and can you give us some information about what you do and, and what is Eurofins MLab P&K? Sure. It's kind of an odd path, actually. I was formally trained in mechanical engineering initially with a bachelor's degree from Caltech in Pasadena, California, and then subsequently a master's degree in mechanical design from Stanford up in San Francisco. And then I went into the automotive industry where I designed airbag crash sensors and eventually managed teams designing airbag crash sensors. And at some point, my mom, who was a music major, so also not from mycology field, called and said this small company that she had been growing that analyzed air samples for mold and bacteria was getting a little bit large. It was at that point my mom, my dad, and one subcontractor. And so I said I left the automotive industry and I took over the management of the company. So I'm not formally a mycologist, but I took the quality control systems, the thought processes that were in the airbag industry where quality is kind of paramount and applied them to the lab. How do we know that the numbers we're reporting are correct, that the processes are working, and that we're delivering the product that the end consumer deserves? And so that grew as a kind of a rising tide rises all boats. I think we were in the right place at the right time. A little bit of luck in the company grew. We then sold it, and it was merged a few times over time. And we are now part of, I think, the endpoint, a company called Eurofins. And so we're Eurofins MLab P&K, and we're proud to be really genuinely proud to be part of the Eurofins scientific family of laboratories, which has, I think at this point, over 40,000 people and facilities kind of worldwide providing a wide range of analytical services. And Eurofins supports us, I think, very well and allows us to run the lab and focus on helping consumers or helping actually our clients are the field people, the people doing the hard work of investigating and doing the on-site inspections. And we are a supporting role of the lab saying, here's what's in the samples they took as part of that investigation. Thanks, Dave. That's great information about the background of, of Eurofins in lab P&K. Uh, they're our primary microbiological lab that we use for the analysis of our samples. So appreciate your expertise and the challenge you've had in transitioning from a, a different industry into the management of Eurofins MLab P&K. I'd like to get a little more information or hear a little bit more about your mom's involvement and how she started the company of MLab and, and kind of her background. Sure. She came from another industry also. She was originally a music major, which about the only thing it has in common with my college is the letter M. <laughs> she actually got tired of teaching music. And so she went back to college and studied mycology. And then she started working for my asthma doctor as a child. I was a severe asthmatic, so I was allergic to all sorts of pollens, allergic to food. I had to get shots two times a week, take a variety of medicines. And one of the allergies was to mold. And I was very fortunate to have, I would argue, one of the top 10 asthma doctors in the U.S. I have no symptoms now. And he was curious and wanted to do research about how the presence of mold in homes could affect the incidence of asthma in his patients. And my mom found this interesting and 
partnered with them and they did some early research into how mold affected his patients. And then that led to her kind of having a hobby doing mold analysis. And then it turned into a small business. And then at some point I circled back now a college graduate rather than an ill child (laughs) and said, well, let me help this out. So asthma gave me a job in some way. (laughs) Yeah, sure did. Wow. That's an interesting background for sure. Well, Dave, let's jump right into some questions about mold testing, and I'd love to get your expertise on how your company helps assist customers and clients in the analysis of mold and the assessment of mold in homes. We perform a variety of testing and utilize your company in the analysis of our mold sampling. Would you mind just telling the listeners and and discuss what type of sampling is provided when inspectors see potential problems in a home or a business? Sure. I'd like to start by saying the samples are important, and certainly that's kind of what keeps Eurofins, MLAP, and afloat is the samples. But the very important part is the on-site inspection, which is done by you and your teammates of looking for the sources of moisture or what could be causing mold. And as part of that inspection, two common tools are surface samples and air samples. And surface samples can help the on-site investigator, who I'd argue is doing the harder work, uh, assess whether this stain or this mark might or might not be a mold growth versus something else. So for example, a colleague that I work with, Dr. Harriet Burge, who many would argue is the world's leader or certainly one of the world's leader in this industry, was involved in an arbitration between a union and their company And as part of the arbitration, they went to the air handlers on the roof and they were pointing to black marks on some of the walls and saying, look at all this, it's mold growth. And they took a surface sample and said, actually, while it may look like mold growth, this is rubber residue from the belts associated with the air handling units. Mm. So surface samples can help that. Also, the second form of sampling or common type of sample are air samples. And air samples help answer the question, which I think is the root of many investigations, is are there sources of mold growth inside from which spores are being aerosolized, being dispensed into the air, and then people are being exposed to those and inhaling them so they can get some adverse health effects. And so one way to assess that thesis or to understand if that's happening is to sample the air directly, those two types of samples. Great. And Dave, we also collect what we call wall cavity samples uh, oh, at yeah. times, depending on the situation in a property or a business that we're inspecting. Tell us what the wall cavity sample provides. What type of data or information is provided when a wall cavity sample is collected? Yes, that's a very good question, right? So earlier I said, right, what we're trying to understand sometimes is, is there mold growth from which spores are being sent into the air and people are being exposed to them? And so sometimes that source of mold growth is on a wall or ceiling or the carpet or materials in the building. But sometimes that mold growth can be inside a wall cavity. And then you might go, well, wait, where, where, how the sample's getting into the breathing space, if you will. And that can be coming through openings in walls. So you have electrical outlets, you might have cable jacks, you could have light switches. And uh, believe it or not, sometimes spores can come through those into the airspace and people can be exposed to them. I recall a case where a home in the Bay Area, so San Francisco, California, where they had done the remediation, they had cleaned up the home, and when they were doing clearance samples, which maybe we should talk about at some point, 
but they were taking samples to verify the work was complete and there were no longer airborne spores that people were being exposed to and they could not get the counts down. They were still getting, if you will, positive results saying there's some inside source. And they went back over and over and eventually they took a sample from an electrical outlet and spores were just coming out of the electrical outlet. And so they had missed a source of mold growth that was in the interior spaces of the walls. And so wall cavity samples can be an important detective tool. Absolutely. And at times we utilize that, that data to try to determine whether there's a need for further mold remediation, invasive exploration is what we call it typically, and cleaning. When we see conditions that are conducive to mold growth, when our inspectors detect moisture especially, but there's no visible mold growth, the question always comes up is, well, is there a potential for hidden mold growth? The cavity samples, the wall and ceiling cavity samples, are oftentimes pretty helpful in trying to make that determination without going to an expense of removing the materials and opening up areas. So wall cavity samples are definitely definitely helpful in, in many cases. Dave, what is the process for, for your testing? The first thing we'll do is log in the samples. So we'll sign for receipt of the samples. The chain of custody is an important element of this whole process to make sure who's got them. And then we will log them into the systems. We'll confirm the sample IDs on the chain of custody matches the samples that we've received, that we then understand the client preferences. Clients may want different types of reports or different types of analyses or have different turnaround time requirements. And we'll make sure that that's all clear. And then we send them back into the lab where they're prepared and analyzed. And these analyses, for the most part, there's a, a wide range of analyses, but for the most part, it's a manual process. You're requiring a trained analyst looking through a microscope, analyzing the samples. And then when they're done and it's signed off through the QAQC processes, then it is sent to the client according to their preferences we have in our system. And the QA and the QC, I think, is an important element. And we have automated that process to make sure that it is done. So we, uh, 5% of the samples going through the lab are replicates and 5% of those are duplicates, which means 10% of the samples going through the lab are quality control samples, where one of those is the same analyst looks at the sample twice, and one of those is where another analyst looks at the samples. So you've had two independent looks at it, and then there's automated criteria to make sure that we are internally consistent meaning if you look at the same sample twice, you get the same result, or that two different analysts are getting the same results so that we can be confident what we're giving to the end consumer or to you are the correct results. Interesting. That's great. Dave, how is the analysis actually performed for the air testing when they're actually collecting a sample of air? How, how does the analyst actually determine the data that is provided basically from the laboratory to the end client? Sure. So most air samplers are called inertial impaction samplers. And so what happens is the air is accelerated through a little small slit or an opening, and then it's forced to make a 90-degree turn. And because you have a high speed going through this opening and a 90-degree turn, the spores tend to go straighter than the airstream, and they impact a sticky surface. And so the spores then stick to that surface. And so that's called a spore trap, if you will. In the lab, we then take that little trace, those impacted spores on the sticky gel, and we stain them. We put a light stain so that they separate themselves from the background a little bit from the dust and the debris and the talcum powder. Then we put a cover slip over it and kind of smear it out so that it's a nice, clean, uniform surface and put it under a microscope. 
and then the analyst looks through the microscope and they analyze them by the morphology or by what the spore looks like. So it's really pretty analogous to if I were to show you an avocado pit, you'd say, ah, that's an avocado pit or coconut or a variety of seeds from the plant world. You can analyze by just looking at what the seed looks like. And so that's what the analysts, they can look at that and say, ah, that's ketomium, that's stachybotrys, that's fusarium. And in some cases, the seeds or the spores of the fungi look similar, in which case we can't get a very precise identification, but we can put it into a broader class or category. So uh, we might call them basidiospores. We don't say exactly what type, but we can say it's part of this broader class. And then we report those results to you. Oh, that's so interesting. It intrigues me, Dave, the analysis part of the whole process. And one of the things that we try to educate our customers on is what information they're getting from that air sample and how we can try to determine whether or not an indoor air samples within normal tolerances, meaning normal fungal ecology, what we would expect to see inside it at home or, or business, compared to uh, potentially uh, an indicator of an indoor mold growth problem. So the samples are compared to a control sample out that's collected outside of the building or home. Tell me a little bit more about what the process is to make the determination of whether that indoor air samples considered what we call normal tolerances or indicative of an actual mold problem. I understand you have something called a mold score in your report. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. What does the data mean? <laughs> and boy, is there a variety out there. So. What makes interpreting mold data challenging is what you just referred to, is what's normal, what's the background. We're not asking, are mold spores present? Because in the vast majority of homes and buildings, unless it's a clean room or an operating theater in a hospital, there are mold spores present. They're in the dust, they're in the carpet, they're in the clothing, they're, they're present. What we're trying to ask is, are there mold spores inside that are originating inside and then being aerosolized and people are exposed to them. Because in that case, we have an inside source from which people can start developing adverse health effects. So given the answer isn't none, how do we tell if there's an inside source? Well, so that's what you referred to as we have an outside control, right? So then we compare the inside, compared to the outside, and we say, aha, if the inside's greater than the outside and the spores inside are behaving rationally and adhering to gravity and settling out, then if there's not an inside source, then the inside should be less than the outside. The problem is that the outside varies. So you can have wind or storms or rain or lawnmowers or kids running around that makes the outside vary. Same thing inside. You can have vacuuming or making the bed or just kids running around having a good time. And so the inside varies. And so what many people do in the industry is they say, hey, we need a safety factor to allow for the fact that the outside varies and the inside varies, but we still don't want an inside source. And so many people use what's called the 10 times rule, where they say if the inside is 10 times the outside, then we have a problem, right? And 10 just originates because we happen to have 10 digits on our hand, right? Our hands, two of them together, not from some scientifically derived thing. People just wanted a safety factor. and. We looked at it and said, well, kind of, right? We get the thought process. We get the intent. But even using a 10 times rule can lead to poor decisions. So, for example, if you're in 
Banff, Canada in February, there's what? There's snow cover all over the ground, mm -hmm. which means there's not a lot of outside spores being aerosolized. And so the outside counts may be below the detection limit. They may be in the tens or low hundreds of spores, pretty low. But inside you have this reservoir of spores that have come in from pets and clothing and windows and doors. And there's not an inside source where it's growing, but they came in in the spring, summer, and fall. And now people are still moving and living and having a good time. And so you could end up in a scenario where the inside is more than 10 times the outside. But that's because the outside is low, not the inside is high. Conversely, you could be in a farming community and there's a combine harvester going along and ta-da, the outside spore counts are in the hundreds of thousands. And the inside, and now we're not gonna say, oh, I need a safety factor of 10, so I'm gonna wait until the inside spore counts are in the millions before I do anything. We well, would say, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> We need to think about, and this is where another of the areas where you and your teammates and colleagues add value, is thinking about the samples and what they're taking and what's expected. But we, the Orphan's MLAB PNK, said we need to add value, right? We're the lab. Our job is to provide good, high-quality data and to help put it in context. So we said, look, we can do better than the 10 times rule. Right. Is it going to be perfect? No, because we don't know why the sample is taken. We don't know the situation on site. We don't know all the particulars, but we can do better than the 10 times rule. So how do we do better? Well, we can say, look, we have this huge database filled with hundreds of thousands. I mean, multiple hundreds of thousands of outside air samples. We know what's normally in the outside air, right? And we know the distributions of what's normally in the outside air. We know what's most common, what's least common, kind of like what's common outside in terms of plants, and it varies based on the time of year, and it depends on where you are in the country, and we know that for the mold, right? What's common in the outside air? Mm -hmm. Then what we did is we said, look, let's take into account what's normally in the outside air, the distribution of what's common in the outside air, whether or not the fungi can even grow indoors. Some fungi, such as rusts, are obligate plant pathogens. Rusts grow on grass, and they make it rust-colored, so they're magically called rusts. And so even if you get high counts inside and there's low counts outside, that's not from molding sheetrock or molding carpeting. It's maybe the pet went rolled through it in the yard and brought it in. It's from some other source. And so we took all those factors and came up with something that we call mold score. And it's just a rating, low, medium, high. We give it a, a number from 100 to 300, where 100 says just from the data, this looks like it's clean or there's not evidence of an inside source of mold spores. And a 300 would say, I don't know if this is from moldy apple pie being thrown out, but the data strongly suggests there's an inside source of mold spores. And then there's a reliance upon you and your team to try to put that in context of the broader investigation. But our feeling is that this is, I mean, I'm biased, I helped develop it, but far better than the 10 times rule. If you may indulge me, I'll give an example. So three common types of spores, basidiospores, ascospores, and cladosporin, right? Three, I'll just call them ABC, three types of spores, ABC, right? If the outside has a thousand of each of those spore types, so we've got a thousand of A, a thousand of B, a thousand of C, and the inside is, for example, 800, 800, 800, or 1200, 1200, 1200, I'd say, look, those are basically the same. 
there's not an elevation of one type, they're in the range of normal variation, that looks okay. Mm -hmm. But we could have a case where it's zero for A, 800 for B, and zero for C. And even though that's a lower total of spores, it's 800 total spores, instead of 2,400 if we had 800, 800, 800. I'd want you, Craig, to go look back and inspect the home. Because if we're saying that 0800 came from a background of 800, 800, 800, I would say, what's the pathway from the outside to the inside? What's the screen door? What's the window? What's the pet that was able to bring in those spores and say, ah, you're mold type A, you can't go inside. You're mold type C, you can't go inside. But you're mold type B, you get a free pass, you can go inside. Or the pathway from the outside to inside is very restrictive, but there's inside source of mold type B. That to me is much more possible that it's an inside source, even though the inside's less than the outside. And so that's what mold score tries to capture is, does this make sense? I don't know if that was a good explanation or not. That was a shot. <laughs> it was, no, it was excellent, Dave. It was, it was fantastic. You know, the interpretation of lab data is very difficult at times, for, oh, yeah. even for oh, yeah. experts to really determine, is that an indication of a problem or not? Because as we know, mold spores are microscopic and there's a lot of variables when it comes to airflow and pathways and so forth and what's coming in from the outside. We get the question occasionally, why can't you just come out and do some error testing and what we call a sample only service where we're just collecting error samples or a client will call in and want us just to come in and come in and do some error testing to try to figure out if there's a problem. Of course, we like to educate our clients and try to inform them of the limitations of standalone error testing due to the interpretation and not knowing the actual conditions of the property. Would you agree that the error testing is a data point that can be very definitive at times, but at other times may not give the full picture of what's going on? Oh, absolutely. When you described that, I, I cringed because, I mean, I'm the lab that my teammates and I we earn our living analyzing samples, but I would in all honesty say that what you and your teammates do is far more important than what the lab does, that your eyes and expertise and your thermal imaging cameras and your inspection equipment and your checklist of looking at the actual property and looking where the moisture might be coming from and looking where mold could be growing and crossing off areas that are clearly not the source, that is far more important than a set of mold data. So I think there are many times that the lab data is very, very helpful, but it's just a clue, right? So for example, the air sample is a 15 minute or a seven minute or a five minute, it's a five to 15 minute sample. And the outside air is varying all the time and the inside air is varying all the time. And so yes, it's data and it's numbers and it looks fancy and we've spent a lot of time making sure that the numbers we give you are correct and accurate and we can defend them in court, but it's just one clue from one snapshot in time and the on-site inspection with your expertise to me is crucial. I'd agree. I would also mention that the air testing, ambient air sampling in many, many cases really does give us the final piece of the puzzle. Our inspectors go out and they do their assessment and do the moisture testing. We see suspect conditions in a room or area, but we may not necessarily know if there's actual mold growth. And then we perform air testing and an air sample comes back. Even at fairly low quantities of overall mold spore counts, sometimes certain types of molds will give us an indication 
we like to call them indicator molds or water damage indicator molds. It, even at very low spore counts, not necessarily indicating an exposure concern or a high level of mold spores that may be presenting adverse health conditions. But the, the mere fact that there are a few spores of certain types of indicator molds, when there's no visible mold growth, it really helps us try to formulate our final opinion of, yeah, we actually do believe there is a mold problem, but you just can't see it because it's just not visible. It's growing on the backside of the drywall, the sheetrock, or underneath a cabinet and so forth. So the air testing clearly, as well as the cavity samples, can in many cases just give us the, the full picture of what's going on in a property. So very, very important for sure to, for the sampling end of it. Thanks, Dave, for yep. that explanation. That's, it's very, very intriguing on the process and your, your mold score and all the data that Eurofins MLAB PNK has collected over the years and how that's utilized in trying to make that complicated decision of whether that ambient air sample is actually indicating a problem or not. So very interesting. Yeah. If, if I can say, this is, our in-house legal counsel is probably going to want me to say this, but I would suggest people keep in mind, recognizing I'm not a medical doctor trained formally in that at all, is that allergies, which are one of the more common health effects associated with mold exposure, develop over time. And so are some allergies do. And so even though they, they may say, well, I've got some mold growth here and yes, there's exposure, but it's, you know, it's expensive to clean or expensive to investigate or expensive to remediate. Well, they may not be having effects now, but in a year or two years, their immune system may develop so that now they do have allergies. And it's because of that mold exposure that wasn't dealt with early on. And so you may have friends, I've certainly had friends who moved to a new part of the country and they say, oh, my allergies are better and this is great. And then two years later, they, oh, it's a really bad allergy season. Well, it might be a bad allergy season or it might be that now they developed allergies to these new antigens. That's true. And I work with clients occasionally who, on the flip side of that, they move to the Northwest or move to an area where they previously were not exposed to certain allergens and mold in some cases. And all of a sudden, they're in the new environment, and they start developing symptoms immediately. And in some cases, it may be a mold problem. In other cases, it may be outdoor allergens that they really can't control. So very interesting how, how our bodies react to not only microbial conditions, but also general allergens in the environment. Well, Dave, this is the part of the show where we'd like to get to know you a little better. Can you share information with us about what you like to do outside of work? Sure. From the company perspective, our local labs and Eurofins like to participate in the community. So it may be through blood drives. It might be through helping the homeless. It's done based upon the own lab locations. On a personal level, I used to rock climb a lot. So I really, really enjoyed that. Maybe climbed Half Dome and El Cap when I was younger. And then my kids came along and they went to a different chapter in life that reduced, but it was replaced by coaching the local middle school robotics teams. And I mm -hmm. did that for about 11 years and really had a good time just working with the local school kids. They're a lot of fun. They're kind of lively and energetic and they greet you with a big smile and it, it's a lot of fun. Wow, that does sound like fun. Well, Dave, do you have any uh, final closing thoughts? No, I'd just like to say that I really appreciate your setting up this podcast and trying to help the community. I think there's a lot of misinformation out there and you're doing this, I think is very valuable. I think I would urge homeowners who have concerns to call you or, you know, find qualified professionals with a lot of experience and try to look at it seriously and talk with the professionals. Don't get caught up in kind of the, I don't know, you can find a lot of misinformation. So 
I also just as a company level enjoy working with you and your teammates and think that you're out there trying to do a good job, which is valuable. Well, thanks, Dave. We, we definitely appreciate that. And we really think highly of Eurofans MLAB P&K and, and the job that you folks do and the expertise that you have. You're a great support for us as well. There's times where we have questions and we don't always have all the answers. And so we lean on you at times to get your expert opinion of the analysis at times and help us formulate the very best opinion and outcome and information to provide to our clients as possible. So we do appreciate you guys and thank you so much for all you do and your expertise. And thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate your time, Dave. Yeah, you too, Craig. Thanks. You bet. Thank you for joining me today for this episode of the Secret Life of Mold podcast. If you need help with mold issues in your home or office, we'd love to help. For our Texas location, please call 888-335-MOLD. That's 888-335-6653. Or email contact at moldtx.com. For our locations other than Texas, reach out to our customer care team at 800-619-MOLD. That's 800-619-6653. Or email us at contact at moldsci.com.